0: You're listening to the Solution Focus Podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focused Practice. And I'm your host, Alan Parry. In this episode of the Solution Focus Podcast, I'm speaking with none other than Eve Lipchik. Eve was a founding member of the Brief Family Therapy Centre so is one of the original midwives of the solution-focused approach. She's also the author of Beyond Technique in Solution-Focused Therapy, Working with Emotions and the Therapeutic Relationship. And here she talks about how the approach was born and the importance of emotion in solution-focused therapy. So without further ado, here is Eve Lipchick. Hello, welcome to the show, Eve. Thanks so much for coming on.
1: Welcome. Thank you. Hello to you, Al.
0: Well, I've I've been really looking forward to speaking to you, Eve. Um, I've been reading your book, and of course, you're one of the founding members of the Brief Family Therapy Center. So you're one of the midwives of this solution-focused approach that we, we've all found so useful. So it's a real honor. Well, it's, it's,
1: it's become a real... Um, Honor for me too, given that the approach has become such such a global so so globally accepted. You know, this this was when we started, this was just a, a lark. We weren't <laughs> <laughs> never expected things to happen the way they did.
0: What was it actually like at that time? What was your typical day like when you were experimenting and trying all these things out, Eve?
1: Well, There would be four or five of us. Um, There was Steve DeShazer in Sue Berg, Jim Dirks, um, Marilyn Bonjean, uh, excuse me, Marilyn LaCourt, um, and sometimes Elam Nunnally. He was a professor at the university. So he was there often, but not every single day, all day. And then I, and we would, if we had clients, at the beginning that was not so frequent because we had just opened the place and we were beating the bushes, so to speak, to get people to come and see us. And if we had clients, we would ask to to have them, we would get their permission for videotaping because that was the whole purpose to have these videotapes of real clients and to analyze them, to just look at them and look at them and sometimes we turn the sound off to see if um, uh, what did we see without sound what did we glean from that and um, and then we would discuss uh, what to do next time or what worked and what didn't work and it was just uh, it was lots of fun. <laughs> Steve DeShazer would there would always be a board, a, a flip chart or a blackboard and Steve DeShazer would stand there and make, take notes and make, you know, write things on the board and um, so that we had some sort of a visual idea of what was going on too and of course he absorbed it all. He was the uh, he synthesized everything that we talked about, and um, he was the theoretician, really. Yeah. And we were the um, stimuli.
0: <laughs> I've always been interested in that idea that, very different to other approaches which start off with a theory, this, is, this has been something which, like you say, was based on observation and analysis of, of real sessions. Right, right.
1: Um, I think Steve had some... Of course, Steve and Ince had been very um, um, enamored of the MRI, the mental research approach. So they came, they developed the idea of Brief Family Therapy Center as An enhancement of the MRI approach or as a slightly different, but they were very much into the MRI thinking, uh, the brief therapy model and what they wanted to do, what Steve wanted to do, Insu was not a a theoretician, she was a very good clinician and Steve adored the way she did her clinical work and it inspired his theoretical work and as a couple they met in Palo Alto. He was living out there uh, working as a social worker. I don't know exactly what but I think he went out there to be close to MRI and to be to hang out there and she went out for a meeting and they met and according to Jim Dirks who was there with them, um, they fell in love right away and uh, <laughs> ended up getting, you know, Steve, who was born and raised in Milwaukee, came back to Milwaukee and they were married and Insu was going to uh, make his dream come true, which was he wanted to be another type of MRI uh, developer like John Weekland. And, uh, so she, she sort of planned and promoted how to help him
0: reach his goals. So they were a very good team. So when you were watching these sessions, Eve, when you saw something significant, what, what was it that you were noticing that, that told you and the rest of the team that it actually was something significant, that it was something that might be worth doing again?
1: Anything that was different. And then we'd say, oh, this is different. Why do we think it's different? You know, and sometimes it made a difference and sometimes it didn't. It was just, it was just fun. (laughs) (laughs) It was just, uh, I mean, it was serious, but it, it was, we had no, I think Steve, who had been a very, Uh, steeped in sociological theory had ideas but we didn't and he didn't share those with us necessarily he may have had some ideas but we just wanted to we were just wanting to see what what works and what doesn't work
0: so when you say difference do you mean that you got a different response from the client or how do you mean by different
1: well yes i mean we Yes, uh, we would ask questions, uh, at that time very problem-oriented, what, you know, why did you come, and what's the problem, and when did it start, and, and we tried not to go back into history too much, because that wasn't the MRI approach either, Yeah,
0: uh,
1: wasn't it? we weren't. Uh, I had some psychodynamic background. Uh, Elam may have had some, although he was more systemic, um Marilyn uh, LaCorte had a um, more communications background. Okay. Uh, so we all brought our own thinking to what we thought was good or bad about these sessions and what we thought was useful.
0: So if we were to do that today, say, with our own clients, if we were to maintain that state of noticing that you all had back then... What, what should we be looking out for that might, that might let us see, you know, any developments or, or something new that might, that might work well with our own clients? Um,
1: well, are we talking about within one session or in a succession of sessions?
0: Oh, either, actually. Whatever kind of thought comes up for you, Eve, would be, would be useful to hear.
1: Well, certainly, uh, we would try to have to look at more than one sessions and look at what's different and what, how do we understand a client answering the way they did, and uh, if there was progress, why is there progress, um, and why, or why is there not progress? What do we think we should be asking differently in order to have progress? And we were at that, and then, of course, we always worked with, with a one-way mirror. Uh, some of us behind the mirror and one person in front of it doing the interviewing. And at that point, um, we felt the difference was the intervention that we designed at the end of the session. We would have a session for 45 minutes. There would be a break. The, ther- the uh, interviewing therapist would come back and talk to the team and they would the team would develop a message to the clients and we felt that message was the news of difference that would create the change and uh, so we and that was kind of an MRI kind of thing too that yeah. that was being very MRI-ish about
0: the process. Thanks for, so, yeah, thanks for that kind of historical overview there, Eve. I'm, I'm, I'm curious, speaking to you in particular, um, because one of the things that I've heard you say before is that what you don't see when you look at any of the writings about solution-focused as it's progressed is an emphasis on the emotion, and that's something that you've written about and talked about quite a lot. So I wanted to ask you, why is... Emotion in your view such an important part of the therapeutic process
1: Because I can't I can't see how Anybody who comes to therapy isn't emotional Mm. and and in order to Join with them in a way that you can work together as quickly as possible and as well as possible not to acknowledge that aspect of it, to me, is a shortcoming. That That's how I feel. And I, I believe my own uh, work with clients, or over the years, I began to believe that it was an important piece of my work with clients, because I never had clients who didn't come back. And right. I don't. And I tried to figure out why was that, you know? Maybe out of a 100 clients, one or two might not come back, but that's a pretty good
0: Yeah, it's very uh, impressive, yeah.
1: So I've, I tried to, over the years, I, I realized that I had a very good connection with my clients and that that connection was a big piece of the change. Uh, of course, my, my technique and my, my questions to the client and my responses at the end of sessions were very important. But I just couldn't see leaving that out because people come when they're in pain.
0: Yeah. So, Yeah. One of the things I noticed in your book you've you've written a book called Beyond Technique in Solution Focused Therapy that I've been I've been reading. I was reading it anyway actually but and you know but it's good research before this interview and it made me want to interview you even more. There was a, a particular thing in there where there's a a client called Jonathan and you give an example where his his best hope if you like is to be decisive. And what the therapist in your example did was just kind of tweak that by asking a question back to say, so what do you mean by that is that you're, you will no longer be afraid to make decisions. So is that the kind of thing that you're talking about where you take a client's kind of preferred future and, and build in the, the possible emotion? No,
1: I think that's a way of, of broadening... Uh, helping the client broaden his or her thinking about um, what they're saying. And, you know, that goes back to processing content. Um, Bandler and Grindler's work, um, the, the, what is it called? I haven't touched it for years, the Something of Magic, um, taught me, The difference between process and content and that's a big deal in how I question clients because clients talk in terms of content and therapists have to to answer to stay connected with clients in terms of content but broaden the clients thinking in terms of process so When I that example you gave is really a broadening of what the client is saying, helping the client expand their own thinking about their problem. I don't think that is specifically something in terms of emotion. It's it's more of how I think about content and process.
0: I see. Does that make sense? It does. So, so for instance, if a, if a client, because there's, there's going to be lots of solution-focused practitioners listening to this. So mm-hmm. if, a, if a client would describe what they wanted in similar terms, what would you be advising therapists and, and other helpers to be doing at that point to, to, to make that broadening actually happen?
1: Well, you have to use your yourself. Um, you have to be listening to what the client is saying and see how else, what else, what other meaning can there be to that? Uh, how, how else can that be thought of? So do you also mean, um, so let's say a client says, um, I want to have a better relationship with my mother. Yeah. Then, then, so then you can either say, what do you mean by that? And they might say, um, I want us to fight less. So, of course, one question could be, so if you were to f- fight less, what will be different... And feel not what would be different. That's one way to t- talk about the future. But the other way, f- first, would be to say, uh, how would you imagine a conversation would be with your mother if, if you would, f- if you're not, fi- if you would be fighting less?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: Um, how how would you both speak? How would both? Both of you would be different, and you could just, you know, that's kind of like a preferred future question. Sure. Going into how would she, what would you notice about her? What would she notice about you? And you, um, the emotional aspects can be part of that. I'm not sure I'm being very clear about that, but... uh,
0: no, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking it through as, as you're speaking, Eve, and what, one of the things that comes up for me there is sometimes, and I'm sure other people have had this experience as well, I, mm-hmm. will som- I will sometimes have a client who will say something along the lines of, I know I'm doing better. In other words, their preferred future is more in their life, but they'll say, I know I'm doing better, but I'm, I'm still not feeling better how would mm-hmm. you how would you handle a, a situation with a client who was saying something similar to that I'm doing better but I'm still not feeling better
1: what would you be doing when you're feeling better <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, were there times when you felt better uh, what was different then um, I, I, you know i I think we're on the same wavelength in terms of emotion what i'm not what I'm not describing clearly is that uh, it's it's a it's an attitude of the therapist to not be so much in a hurry to ask of. Uh, the specific technique questions to respond to clients with when they're talking about, uh, you know, they're not better to say not what will be what will make you better or how, how do you think you'll feel when you're better, but to say, wow, that must be really frustrating. Yeah, so it's really how you respond, it's not the technique it's not the questions it's going beyond the technique for in the interactional sense of allowing oneself to say wow that sucks doesn't it yeah you know and to and to say how does it not to be afraid to sometimes ask the question how does it feel when your mother is so distant you know, and for the client to say, it's terrible, you know, and but I'm so angry at her, I don't even know if I want her to be closer. And then you can go back into the questions again. So it's, are there times when you're not angry at her?
0: Yeah, so it's it's kind of like that basic empathy that the counsellors and therapists are, are typically taught, I suppose, Eve, isn't it? Exactly, it's, exactly. Yeah.
1: exactly, So. Exactly.
0: Is, is it your concern then that perhaps when we have this wonderful technique at our fingertips that we might just face a temptation to leave the client, I suppose, and, and go on to the next, the next technique question, as you've just put absolutely.
1: it? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my goodness, teaching this for years and years and years, absolutely. And it's, it's understandable because the beginner um, wants to do it right and, and how do you do it to begin with? You ask the questions. And so the tendency is to um, to make it a very cut and dried process. Now, I'm not saying that isn't helpful sometimes, no. But that depends on the client. Some clients may appreciate that approach and other clients may feel I'm not being understood. I mean, well, what's, you know, I, I'm feeling terrible and the client is peppering me with questions. So I've had that happen early on to my, myself too. Or, uh, people um, sort of, but you have to pick that up by their body language, by their facial expression. As so it, it being a solution-focused therapist does not only require knowledge of the methodology and the technique but of reading people's body language and facial expressions and feeling the emotional tone in the room it's being a human being I always say human being first uh, therapist second
0: yeah and I think in your book you even said a solution focused therapist third
1: yes We, we, we the techniques are so um, seductive and they're also very um, they're they're anchors when the new students come in and they learn it's, it's something to hold on to which you don't if you, I was trained psychoanalytically you don't have that that clear-cut a road to to walk. Uh, you're told, oh, yeah, you know, you can say, what did your mother think and how do you feel about th-? All you ask about is, is how does that feel, which is also an anchor. But a solution-focused therapist therapy gives you more options as a beginner, and you want to use them all. And the students used to write them on the back of their hand, and they used to take little pieces of paper into the... Um, into these first second sessions with them. But I, when I taught um, after a while, what I would do is say, I want you to forget everything, go into that first session and just try to connect with the client. Just be friendly, ask about them. Um, you know, at most, ask uh, what uh, at the time what their goals. At those time days, we used to talk about goals. I mean, go slow, go slow, and then then the clients started to come back because a lot of clients didn't come back when students interviewed them.
0: That's interesting. I I, I recall in your book, Eve, that you said brief therapy goes slow.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it's, that still goes. I I think some of the more uh, recent uh, developments talk about, uh, are, you know, what's coming out of Europe. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of different people. Uh, the more the most recent literature is very. Um, sparse in terms of anything except direct questions go right don't don't worry about anything ask the client what is your preferred future and go for it and and don't do anything else which now i don't know whether the people who write these articles actually Practice that way, or if this is their way of suggesting that that's how it should be done, only and they'd leave out the rest. But it sounds like it sounds to me like it's very much uh, more practical, and the goal is to be very brief and and focused, as opposed to not worrying about how brief it is, but how effective it is.
0: Yeah, I I did notice when I read your book, Eve. That I wonder what's the best way to to put this. You, I saw a few examples where you seemed a lot happier than many people I've spoken to. To kind I'm, of get. I'm get, sorry, get, I didn't get that. That I seem to what? Yeah, you seem happier to get your feet wet in the problem a little bit more than people that I have spoken oh, yes. to.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So. Yes. That's my psychodynamic
1: background, I think. Yeah. However, I mean, my my average treatment was between six and ten sessions. And I'm talking couples, families, individuals. Sometimes they were shorter. Sometimes they were longer. But the average was somewhere between 6 and 10. Now, you also have to remember that that book was written in the year 2000. Yeah. And a lot has happened since then. And I think most of the writing that's significant is coming out of Europe. Right? Out of Sweden. Yeah. Out of uh, England. Out of Britain, Great Britain. Yeah. I think... The gentlemen who are writing those articles are very um, orthodox in terms of brevity. Would you? Wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, um, I know that. For instance, um, the people are brief. Um, they like the concept of minimalism. For instance, I've seen some articles around minimalism and doing the. You know, doing doing the least that we need to do and getting the method. Yeah, Is that, yes,
1: yes, and um, that's great. Uh, it's interesting. It's just not the way I think. It's not the way I think or, or I have been thinking until I retired.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know. I noticed there was one example within the book. It was a person called Ramona, and Ramona said. I feel so down that I can't move. And then the response from the therapist was things like, what other feelings are you having as a result? And what does it mean to you that you're feeling so down? So that kind of, well, I suppose I'm asking this because it almost feels, I was about to describe that as delving into the problem, but actually you're delving into the emotion. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, so it's interesting there that I kind of saw the emotion as as an aspect of the problem. Absolutely. It, 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 it is. Yeah. It is. But,
1: you know, Steve was very much against emotion and as I wrote in the book probably, or maybe I didn't, but I commonly speak about the fact that he would remove the box of Kleenex from the from the consultation room because he said when people see Kleenex, they, it gives them permission to cry and there's no need for that. Right. Well, I, I can't agree with that. I never agreed with it and I would argue with him about it, but I mean, that's how, and I feel that the current literature is follows Steve's way of thinking much more than um, previously. On the other hand, all the people who are writing of significance are male. i don't I can't think of any um, any any female who's writing any articles on the future development or or recent development or recent ideas on solution-focused therapy. Can you? Um, I have to I'm not, I'm not since I'm, I've retired for two years, I'm not totally into keeping up with everything. So maybe you know better because of the position you're in.
0: Well, I know that Susie Curtis, for instance, has been kind of leading the accreditation system in the UK. Um, so while she's not writing stuff for public consumption, um, I know she's been the driving force of the accreditation program over here, but yeah, I, I'm I'm thinking of a lot more males when I'm thinking of of solution focused writers than I am females. Certainly,
1: yes, and uh, certainly the males we're talking about are, you know, uh, in the past. I mean, Steve is a, was a man who didn't show emotion. He, he, he pretended he was a very emotional man, very sensitive man, who pretended that he didn't have feelings. He, he, he pretended to be rough and tough and, and, uh, and not, to wanna, not to be interested in connecting with people. And knowing him as well as I did, I know that that's not true, even though he never showed that other side just very, very, very rarely, um, he had lots of feelings. Now, his mentor was um, John Weakland. Yeah. And John Weakland was the kind of man who was exactly the same way. He would almost not respond to you when you talked. However, here's, here's some here was something that made me totally change, John Weekland was visiting us once. Um, he'd come for a day or two and then he'd sit behind the mirror or do a exhibition session and I had a client and he was behind the mirror and I was terrified thinking oh my gosh you know <laughs> his style so different than his I, I was not comfortable but there was nothing I could do about it yeah. and I came back after the session and John said to me oh that was so nice you remind me of my mother <laughs> and I was taken aback yeah. because there again was the same guy as Steve who had this Outer appearance of being totally without feelings, and he responded to the, the connection I had with the client. Which, and there's there's more to that because he came once and brought us some some um, examples, some videos of his sessions from private practice because all we had ever seen was him do a session, an exhibition session for our students and for us. And there he was just like Steve, very brief, very unemotional by that, you know, very never talking about the feeling or anything like that. And In his private practice, the videos he showed were dramatically different not that he spoke so much about feelings he sometimes actually used the word but there was a warmth and a connection a relational connection that he didn't show when he did an exhibition session Right. so even these so you know I think I didn't know what to make of it. Is it simply that theoreticians don't want to go into the into the connective piece of therapy, or, or, or is it that the certainly the men that I've known who were the big names in in the development of, of the, the therapy Therapy. Um, the MRI guys were all totally unemotionally. Un- oh my goodness! <laughs> you could at a meeting if you you couldn't. They were just not people who would just converse easily. Any of them. So I, I don't know if, if solution focused therapy is an example of uh, that has grown out of a certain um group of what's the word to say that personalities who don't want to deal with emotions who feel that uh, one sh- one can solve problem one should just get down to business and solve a problem and not get into the feelings that that's their way of behavior in general and and that, that that's how that's their comfort zone and that has been reflected in, in the work they've done in the theoretical development that resulted. I don't know. So if you were uh, something I've never thought about before, before I with you right now.
0: <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious, how would you steer solution focused back towards the emotional elements that, that you feel are, are are maybe missing a little bit?
1: Well, going back to saying to writing about when you start a session, ask people how uh, how they got there. Do some what we used to do, uh, what we used to call um, some uh, you know back and forth about some some connecting with them about how you you know isn't this a horribly cold day and uh, uh, did you have a hard time getting here and. to make them comfortable a little bit for the first 10-15 minutes or before going right to the so what brings you here today or uh, what's your preferred future I mean to to do some social connection not to waste time I'm not suggesting wasting time and doing this for an hour Uh, however what do you do when a client doesn't want to answer questions when when you start asking questions and they don't, they don't, they don't answer. They don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. What do you do?
0: Yeah. What What would your answer be to that question, Eve? What would you do? Uh,
1: I would say, how do you? I, I'd have to stay with how do you think I can be helpful to you? Um, but clients who. Um, specifically clients who come in with an agenda of wanting to tell you a story. What can you do with them? Can you cut them off? Can you say, I I understand that you're feeling badly and you've come here because you want to solve a problem, so tell me, what is your preferred future when you think of that problem? And what if they keep going back to wanting to tell you the details? You, you, all you can do is let them tell you. They, it's happened a hundred times. You let them tell you. You let you let them leave. They come back and they're ready to work. Many people come to therapy feeling if the client, if the therapist doesn't know my story, they can't help me. So you have to go where the client is. You can't, you can't approach things from where you are. You also, it's an interactive process.
0: Yeah, I've experienced that an awful lot, that on a first session people just want to, well, we would say over here, spill spill their guts out, really. They yes. want to tell their story, yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly.
1: So, I mean, that's what I call about emotions. That's, that's an emotional thing, isn't it? so we can't ignore that and we have to read people emotionally as well as uh, cognitively and behaviorally we have to read them in terms of their body language, in terms of their uh, facial expressions, in terms of their their um, cognitive responses, it's the whole package now I know that there's disagreement about that, and it's, it's how the therapist guides the process. I, it's perfectly fine. It's legitimate. It's just there are differences of opinion about
0: that. What are your thoughts, Eve, on the question of... So when, when a client goes into what, what the literature might refer to as problem talk, what hmm. is your sense of, of when to... Kind of shift it back to solution talk again.
1: Uh, As soon as I feel that I can interrupt and say, "You're really giving me a good idea of what your problem is," and I I think I've I've got it. So tell me if that problem were to be begin to be resolved, what what will that look like? And then if the client goes back to telling me this story, I would listen again and I would try again after five minutes or so to go, yes, yes, I, you're really giving me a good example of, of how difficult the situation is. So are have, have there ever times when it's little less difficult? I would, I would just play with trying to guide them that person into a different direction very gently, yeah, and always. And you see, that's the emotional piece to say, "Oh, that's terrible." You're really, you're really giving me a good idea about how awful things are, and then try to move forward to the future.
0: Yeah, I like that phrase. Actually, Eve, uh, you're really giving me a good idea of how bad this is, and uh, yeah, I like that phrase.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and use whatever. I mean, you. You can use anything you want. You just, it's a conversation you're having with someone and you're, you're thinking, you know, as I say in the dual track thinking in my book, yes. you're, there's a process going on inside of you. And you're just going, oh, this God, I don't want to hear this. I don't need to hear this whole story. I know what's going <laughs> on here. And then, so... And then you say to yourself, well, I think it's time. Maybe now they've told me enough that I can, I can let them know that I think I know the problem and it's terrible. You know, it, it's, you're, you're, there's something going on inside of you. But, you know, for beginning, for beginners, that's difficult because they're so intent on using the que- techniques and talking about how when the more experienced you become, the more relaxed you are, and the more that conversation within you guides what's going on.
0: What's your sense, Eve, of what the opening question would best be? Because what what people tend to do at the moment anyway is they will ask a question which is very similar to what are your best hopes from coming here today. Do you think that's... Is that the kind of question that you would still be asking, or do you think there needs to be a question that comes first that asks about their struggle?
1: I I think all those questions are fine. Okay. I, I think asking them, what brought you here today? What's your best hope? What's... Even asking them, what's your goal in coming here? I think all those questions are okay. I... You know, this method now is forty years old, right? I mean, yeah. not really, because in, in solution-focused therapy didn't start till the eighties, um, early eighties. So it's well, it's almost forty years. Um, it, any method, whether it's Freudian analysis or or behaviorism or, CB, uh, or uh, cognitive behavioral, the one, each generation that uses it develops new ideas about it. Are they all, do they all improve it? Some do, some don't. It's, from my point of view, it's all about the therapist's focus and understanding of that first question you know it, it does say to the client we're moving forward and it points the client in a direction but as I said before if the client one came tell and wants you to came to tell their story it's not going to do any good it's a it's a two-way street. What I object to in the recent writings, and as I said, that that are coming out from from Great Britain, from Sweden places, I'm afraid that the methodology will overpower the interaction. This is still a systemic process. It's a collaborative process, and we don't want to go overboard in in guiding that process as therapists, guiding it in terms of not allowing the client to be themselves. Am I, am I being clear?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm thinking about something that you said in your book as well, that you said, and and it resonated with me when, when I read it, it you said that there are two common pitfalls. The first is that we will withdraw our attention from the client in order to think about what the next question should be. And the second one is asking questions at inappropriate times. And I suppose that encapsulates the the issue, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: Yes. Right.
1: Exactly. I mean, the word collaborative, I haven't read collaborative as much lately. I've read um, about different rooms and different structures for the therapy it's all very intellectual and I'm, I'm I'm concerned about the interaction that it is an interaction between two people and of course we're trying to help the we're trying to help the clients who come to us as quickly as possible but in that process, we must not for, we must not lose sight of their individuality and their needs in, or in, in our effort to be as helpful as possible. It's all very positive. the intentions are positive, but my reading is, is have... Oh, caused me to worry a little bit about are we not are we not are we losing the collaborative aspects of this what do we mean by collaborative are we just saying it's a process between two people where one gives information and the other guides that information toward toward a future or are we having a a human collaboration which encompasses all aspects of any conversation other than an inquiry which is different, which if it's just an inquiry, then we're not equals. We want to be equals with our client, which means we have to be equally sensitive to their needs as we are to our efforts to help them
0: yeah I, I like that phrase I think that's that's a lot to chew on isn't it that that sense of egalitarianism um, yes to, yeah
1: that's our emotionalism we are using emotion to want to help so badly that perhaps we avoid considering their emotions at the moment.
0: Can, I'm, I'm aware of that I could, I think I could probably speak to you Eve for days on end, um, but I'm aware that the, the time's ticking on and I, I, I want to be respectful of your time too. So can, can I ask a question about the end of therapy? Not, not the end of a therapy session,
1: but mm-hmm. the end
0: of therapy. I was, yes. I was struck within, the, within your book Um, where you talk about the distinction between first order change and second order change in the case of a couple called Jane and Steve. So before I ask the question about Jane and Steve specifically, would you enlighten us on what the difference is between first order change and second order change?
1: Well, that goes back to MRI and systemic thinking. First order change is change that really doesn't, effect, has a systemic reverberation. Second order change is a change that affects every part of the system. I see. So it's, it's a very superficial change. It looks like change. You see, but it, but it really isn't because, it, and it is a systemic concept, okay?
0: So, if, so I, if I understand it right, is first order change kind of where you're doing more or less of something? And second order change is, is uh, let's say, you've got a completely new view of the thing. Yeah. Can that's,
1: that's a good way of saying it. Yeah, the first order change is that you start, you start exercising every day. Yeah. Uh, And you say it makes you feel better, but it doesn't resolve your depression. Right. Yeah.
0: So in the case that is in your book between Jane and Steve, they'd identified the problem as not spending enough time together. And the point that you make in the book is that should they find a solution to that and start spending time together together, then you wouldn't necessarily, well, what you said is that a therapist might actually be tempted to say, well, job done, let's end the therapy there. And you were saying that you wouldn't then be surprised to see that couple come back again, say seven months down the line, because it was only a first order rather than a second order change. So my Mm -hmm. question is, at what point um, would you advise solution-focused therapists to think about End in therapy, making that sort of decision collaboratively with the with the client. I don't
1: I I don't make decisions like that independently. I would ask. It seems to me that what I've done all along is when clients start reporting positive change, um, I ask them. So do you think we've we've done enough here at this time and even sometimes if I feel it's unless it's really very serious I wouldn't if they said yes I wouldn't say to them I don't think you should stop at this point unless as we're talking about severe depression or behaviors that are in any way dangerous I Again, here's the collaborative aspect, the client knows when it's enough. And then these clients come back, they really do. And what you say to them is fine, I mean, let's go over the progress you feel you've made and we go over it. and. Uh, is there anything else you feel you want to do? And sometimes they say, yeah, but we're not right now, or sometimes it changes their mind. But the end sentence I'd say is, great, well, I'm glad you feel that way, and uh, you know the door is always open, you can always come back.
0: Yeah. So for my final question then, Eve, what... <laughs> What would your kind of um, parting words for this podcast be for people who work in a helping way in a solution-focused fashion? What is the kind of key message that you would like to get across to them and discuss off the back of this podcast? Mm.
1: Well, I go back to... Uh, It's so hard to say. I think everybody's an individual and has their own way of doing things. Um, It's just keep remembering you're dealing with somebody who's, who's hurting or with people who are hurting, and keep a balance between trying to be aware of that and maybe just reflect it back to them sometimes so they know you understand and and between working so hard to help them i'll just end with an example that i've it's not in the book but when i left pre-family therapy center and um started ICF Consultants with Marilyn Bonjean. One of the things that I did was do a a little research project where I asked clients, um, after the first session, they had to, after the first session, when they came in for the second one, they would give me a sheet, um, just quickly answer what, do they what did they think about the last session that helped them that they that was helpful and they the client was given a sheet like that after every session but the therapist at the end of every session um, wrote down what they thought would make a difference for the client in the coming session. So you had, The therapist thinking, well, we had this conversation about that. Or in my summary, I said this, and I think that's going to make a difference. Well, we had 60 cases, and not one of them replied specifically something the therapist did. All of them said, I felt understood. Right. I felt the therapist cared. I felt... We were talking about things that I could think about in general. But the the emphasis on feeling uh, understood and, and feeling comfortable in the session was the major thing. And research has talked about that, you know. Yeah. Clients' comfort level in sessions leading to, to how
0: much progress that leads to. And that goes back to your point earlier about content and process, I suppose. The therapists were thinking it was the content and the clients were stating that it was the process.
1: Right, yeah. right,
0: yeah. Well, thanks very much for your time and your wisdom, Eve. It's been absolutely lovely speaking to you and I'm really thankful that you've given up an hour of your time to, to share your thoughts with us.
1: Well, I I appreciated uh, your my conversation with you very much because uh, you know, of the homework you've done and the wonderful questions you asked. You asked excellent questions, uh, and that was that was a wonderful thing. I appreciated that oh, very much.
0: Oh, thanks very much, Eve. Good nice luck to you. Yeah, thank and to you. Bye yeah, bye. Take care. Uh, bye. You've been listening to the Solution Focus Podcast, the official podcast of the UK Association for Solution Focused Practice. To find out more about us, visit ukasfp.org. That's ukasfp.org. Now, our best hope is that you'll spread the word by sharing the podcast with your friends and on your social media. Even better would be to rate us on Apple Podcasts so it's easy for others to discover the show. And if you'd like to contact us or even be a guest on the show yourself, just write to podcast at ukasfp.org. That's podcast at ukasfp.org. Until next time, thanks for listening and goodbye.